In dramas that depict the good guys against the bad guys, there is often a key point in the story when the good guys get a break in the case. Whether detectives or prosecutors, police officers, the good guys work feverishly to capture and to convict the criminal. But as the story often goes, they encounter one frustration after another, one setback after another, and it looks like justice will not prevail. The murderer will go free. The child molester will return to the streets. The bank robber will escape prosecution. But then the good guys get a break in the case. The key document is discovered. An eyewitness to the crime comes forward. A new piece of evidence links the criminal to the crime scene. And with that break in the case, the bad guy is brought to justice and there is a sense of satisfaction that good has prevailed. As experience teaches us in the real world, too often, however, the big break comes just as often for the bad guys. In a bathroom stall at a train station, an Islamic militant discovers a map detailing the route that a Western diplomat's motorcade will take through the city the next day. It is a major break in an assassination plot. A chance meeting places a sexual predator alone in a secluded location with a young girl. What good fortune, he thinks, with an evil grin. An armed robber is overjoyed when a trusted banker betrays his wealthiest client and gives to the robber the location of and the combination to the man's business safe. When the good guys get the break in the drama between good and evil, righteousness prevails. But when the bad guys get the break in the drama between good and evil, the results are tragic. As we continue in our study through the life of Jesus, we witness today a big break for the forces of evil. A break that precipitates the most tragic of all tragedies, Leading into this dark page in human history, we come today to Luke chapter 21 and verse 37. We could well have considered that last week with the lengthy passage in chapter 21. I chose to just deal with that here today because it is an in, a very important transition point in the text of Luke. And it leads us into the consideration that we will encounter here in chapter 22. But just for a few moments, let's consider verses 37. 7 and 38 of Luke chapter 21. We read here that each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. The temple, of course, inside the walls of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives running along the east wall of Jerusalem on the outside and overlooking the city. So after teaching during the day at the temple area where the crowds would assemble, Jesus left the city for the night. He did not lodge in Jerusalem as would have been very typical for pilgrim, Passover pilgrims. Why did he not do that? Jesus spent the night 
outside of the city for safety reasons. And as we put together the various gospel accounts, it would appear that he came to the house of Lazarus in Bethany on Friday, spent the night there, and spent every subsequent night there at Lazarus' home until his death. We don't know that for sure, but Lazarus' home is on the Mount of Olives, uh, over the other crest on the east side of the Mount of Olives. And it's very probable that Jesus spent each of these nights leading up to his death there. Journeying then the two miles back to the city of Jerusalem during the day, Jesus was met by the anxious crowds. And I think there's probably two reasons for these verses here. I've, I've seen in, in at least one commentary that they're not even considered. They're just simply skipped. But I think there's a reason for these verses that are helpful to us. First of all, they mark the close of the formal teaching ministry of Jesus Christ to Israel. I've entitled them in my notes, Lights Out. This is the end. By signs and miracles, Jesus has made it patently obvious to Israel who he is. He controls nature. He can win over death. Jesus is God. He is Messiah. And by his teaching, he has called the nation to repentance and to embrace him as God's Messiah and Savior. And now Christ's public ministry is over. In this summary statement, following this lengthy section of teaching in chapters 20 and 21, subtly makes that point. It's over. The teaching is done. The miracles are finished. In a public manner, Jesus' ministry is finished. Secondly, I think these verses provide a subtle transition in what is to follow, into the final tragic hours of Christ's life, which begin now to unfold in chapter 22. And in these first two chapters, or verses of chapter 22, we find the setting for this final drama, the festival of Passover and unleavened bread. We find here in these words also, I think, an indication of the external plot that has been in the works against Jesus for some time. Verse 1 of chapter 22, if you'll notice it in your text. Now the, bread of unleavened, now the feast of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. We have here the external plot against Jesus, and we've considered this a number of times already as the religious leaders are seeking to end Christ's life. We consider here in verse 1 the seven-day festival of unleavened bread, the Jewish calendar, Nisan 15 to 21, and it's preceded by the festival of Passover, Nisan 13 and 14. We can read about the festival of Passover and unleavened bread, which were considered often just together since they commemorate the same period in Israel's history and often considered under the name Passover. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 12. Coming together as they do in this way, they commemorate Israel's deliverance from Egypt. You remember the Passover night, that night when the death angel passes over the Israelite homes. The Israelites instructed by God to take a sacrificial lamb and to kill that lamb, in a sense, in the place of the firstborn son. And to take that blood and to smear it on the posts of their door. 
as an indication that they have been covered by the blood of Christ and a sacrifice has stood in the place of the firstborn. And with that blood on the doorpost, the death angel passes over the Israelites that night. It is a day of great remembrance for Israel, this Passover festival. And following right upon it, seven days of the festival of unleavened bread, which is a commemoration of Israel's departure from Egypt. You remember on that night they left in such haste that their bread was not leavened, and they ate for some time then the unleavened bread, or something like a cracker without the rising of the bread. And it all reminded them of the grace and the deliverance and the salvation of God for the people of Israel. This is that time of year. Passover is coming fast, is about to be celebrated, and Jesus is teaching in the city with his enemies circled around him. Verse 2, as that makes it so very clear of chapter 22, they are looking for a way to get rid of Jesus, but are afraid of the people. Ironic, isn't it? They are celebrating God's gracious deliverance of the firstborn in Egypt while they are plotting to murder God's only son. Celebrating deliverance and life while they scheme behind closed doors to destroy life. This is nothing new for us, is it? We've considered this. Chapter 19, verse 47. Chapter 19 and verse 47 has said, Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. And chapter 20 and verse 19, the teachers of the law 2019, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. So we come back here to 22.2 and we find really nothing new. Luke, as he writes the account, is, however, bringing us back into this theme of the external plot against Christ. We are reminded of their Fear also along with this plot, and that is that as Jewish leaders, they understand at this time of Passover festival, there will be many pilgrims here, and they know that Jesus is wildly popular at this time, and so they are afraid of the people and what they will do. They form a protective wall around Jesus against the Jewish authorities. If they take Jesus in broad daylight, they are quite sure there will be a riot. There is one thing that Rome will not tolerate, and that is a riot. If there is a riot of the people, the Roman soldiers will come in and they will squash the riot. They will take as many lives as they need to to bring everything under control and will make no apologies and there's no laws against it. But once the people are crushed... Then the Roman authorities will work to find out who instigated this riot, and those individuals will die a hideous death for all to see. So these Jewish religious authorities are not about to step into that mess. They're not going to get the people to riot, so what do they do? They're extremely frustrated. They want Jesus dead. They want this teacher who has repeatedly humiliated them and exposed their unrighteous hearts 
gone. They want him out of the way. But they can find no way to do it. During the day, he is surrounded by all of these adoring crowds. And at night, he escapes out of Jerusalem and they cannot follow him, perhaps are not permitted to follow him by the crowds that leave with him. In some way or other, whatever the case there, they cannot follow him at night and they cannot bring him down. It seems to be that Jesus is unapproachable, invincible, unconquerable, unless. And it is here that these enemies of Jesus Christ receive their break. There's an internal plot as well as an external plot. Verse 3, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. This was the break they had been praying for. And I use the word carefully. They had been praying for this break. They could not get Jesus, but an insider could. And to their gleeful surprise, that insider comes to them. Judas, one of the twelve, one of Christ's inner circle of disciples, stands there right in front of them in their chambers, ready to make a deal. This was the break they had dreamed for, and it came out of the blue. No, in fact, it came right out of hell. Satan entered Judas. We're reminded in this text of the cosmic battle of which we've sung earlier today. It is going on behind the scenes at all times. This battle always rages, and never more intensely than when God's people advance the glory of God. When God's people are active in the service of the Lord, that battle rages, and how much more than in the life of Jesus. Reminds me of a letter that I wrote to our singles who are in Mexico today and seeking to advance the gospel and perhaps as we are gathered here, gathering there in worship with God's people. And um, we need to be in prayer for them. But as they left, I put a letter in Paul's hand and asked that he read it at an opportune moment. But I said in this letter, please remember that your mission will be under constant assault from spiritual forces. Do not look for a demon behind every tree and under every rock, and do not wag an accusatory finger at Satan every time you are tempted to sin. But, do remember that when a group of Christ's followers propose to spread the gospel and encourage the work of Jesus, Satan does not get happy, he gets busy. In Christ, you are fully equipped to withstand every spiritual assault. You need not fret, only rest in God's provision and walk in humble obedience. But you must remain vigilant, as each one of you will indeed do battle with Satan. Fear, lust, jealousy, pride, anger, self-centeredness, apathy, the battle will be different for each one of you, but be assured, 
the battle will rage. Stay awake. And I share those words with you as an assembly that we might be in prayer for them and that we might do the same thing. There has been a work of God that has gone on in this building and in this assembly for the last several days. Satan is busy. You can guarantee it. We have reached out to our community. We have proclaimed the gospel of Christ. We saw, in fact, on Thursday night, a good number of people who have come and heard the gospel. We thank God for that, but we must never forget that Satan rages with anger, and we better be ready. How much more is this the case in the ministry of Jesus Christ? and the disciples, and in the life of Judas himself. The problem with Judas was that his soul was hollow, and it was unprotected, and so Satan possessed it. This does not mean, I don't think the text here, that Satan entered Judas. I don't think that that means that Judas was a passive victim. That he's sitting one day there in love with Jesus, and all of a sudden, bang, he's filled with this demon and doing things that he never thought he could do. In fact, he might, some might even think of him in something of a zombie state, going around as a robot carrying out Satan's wishes. By no means. And the text of Scripture makes that very clear, that Judas participated in all of this willingly. He was empowered. Satan filled him in some way that we may not ever understand and hope we don't. But Judas opened his heart to Satan's influence. He willingly did so. And Satan now rode Judas like a bridled horse. Judas was Satan's willing lackey, carrying out the destructive plan against the Savior. Imagine this setting. It's a horrifying scene. And we don't know all the details by any means. The scriptures is very sketchy on this point. But imagine the scene. Perhaps it was while Jesus was teaching late that Tuesday afternoon. Perhaps it was while the chief priests were sequestered in their chambers, agonizing over a plan to destroy Jesus, so frustrated that they couldn't get at him, when there was an announcement by one of the guards that someone had come to visit them. It better be somebody important. And the guard assures them that indeed it is. And in a moment of time, there stands before them Judas, one of the twelve, one of Jesus' inner circle. The priests are surprised to see one of Jesus' followers on their turf. And believe me, they were very interested to know what he had to say. He was alone. Judas approaches, and in the words of Mark, or Matthew, rather, he asks this chilling question. What will you give me if I hand him over to you? What's in it for me if I do what you want? This was the big break. Verse 5, they were delighted and agreed to give him money. 
overjoyed. And so were Satan's minions as they shrieked with glee. The priest offered to give Judas 30 pieces of silver, approximately a third of a year's wage for a common laborer. It was a sizable sum in Judas' estimation, and with it the religious leaders bought his soul. As verse 6 makes clear, he consented. He agreed to the money. I turn him over to you, you give me 30 pieces of silver. He consented, and he, the Greek text, kept on watching for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. You see the sinister, evil connection here. They couldn't get at Jesus during the day. They couldn't get at Jesus during the night. They needed to get at him when the crowds were not present. Judas is the man to complete the deal. He's the missing piece of the puzzle. He can put them in touch with Jesus when there's no crowd. And so he went to work and kept on striving and kept on looking for a way that he could avoid the detection of the other disciples and of Jesus, perhaps, and put the two together, his enemies and Jesus. Isn't it ironic? We won't look at that here in this text. Luke is fairly brief on this point and on Judas in general. But ironically, it will be Jesus who gives Judas the opportunity. Judas would not have been able to leave the disciples at the Passover meal were it not for Jesus giving him permission. Without that dismissal, Judas would not have gone for the soldiers, probably come back to the house where the meal was being eaten found it empty, and then saying, I'll know where he is. He'll be at the Mount of Olives. Had Jesus not given Judas that opportunity to leave that meal, that would not have taken place at that time. In a further irony, as Judas leaves the chambers of the chief priests and walks away, all the hopes and dreams of Christ's enemies rest upon the slouching shoulders of this one, Judas Iscariot. It was a heavy burden to bear, and Judas would not even be able to bear it to the end of the week. In a few short hours, he would hang from a rope, taking his own life. He had betrayed a good and innocent man. He had betrayed the good and innocent man. Who is this Judas Iscariot? And what do we learn from him? Let's stop for a few moments and consider his life. This is one of the horrible parts of the story. Judas Iscariot was a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let that filter in for a moment or two. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus personally chose Judas to be one of his 12 disciples. 
This means that Judas knew Jesus Christ. It means that he knew him very well. It means that he watched the way that he lived every day. It means that he learned Christ's ways and Christ's teachings. And not one of the disciples of Jesus ever suspected that Judas was a spiritual fraud. When Jesus said, I am being betrayed by one of you, every last one of them looked in the mirror and said, is it me? They didn't all turn and look at Judas and say, we knew it all along. Let's get him now. Nobody suspected Judas. 22-23. I think the wrong response to that is we think of being fo- as, as followers of Christ. I think the wrong response is to be highly suspicious now of every professing Christian. To think of ourselves as Peter, or James, or John, or Andrew, and to think, if they had been a little bit more awake, they might have realized who Judas was. And I'm going to be a little bit more awake and be more discerning about those who really don't belong to Christ and say they do. That's not the right response to this. I think the right response is to recognize that people who associate with Jesus, who have intimate knowledge of Jesus, people who actively serve Jesus, may be serving Satan. That is a possibility. And I think what we need to do is do what the disciples did in 22-23, and that is to look into the mirror. You may be able to fool everyone around you for the rest of your life. Did you hear me? You may be able to fool everyone for the rest of your life. You can serve Jesus to the end of your days, but not be truly born again. Not be a genuine child of God. That is possible. The answer in our relationship with God is not association with Jesus. It is not even service to Jesus. The answer is this. Has Jesus Christ satisfied your soul? Is knowing Him through faith the drink of spiritual water from which you will never thirst again? Not that the satisfaction is all that you will hope it to be in eternity. But the fact is that you have tasted and know that that satisfaction is eternal and complete and you have tasted it. You know you will never thirst again. Judas didn't have that. He served Jesus. He knew all about Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He was a follower of Jesus, but he was empty. He was a disciple of Jesus. That's not the end of the account. Judas was also a lover of money. Judas was the treasurer of Jesus' ministry, John chapter 14 and verse 29. He not only loved keeping the books, he also loved keeping some of the money for himself. As John tells us there, Judas was a thief. The greed of Judas's heart was exposed on the Friday that Jesus arrived at Bethany from Jericho. 
Remember on his journey toward Jerusalem to Passover, he goes from Jericho to Bethany on one journey, on one day, and that evening there is a dinner for Jesus in his honor. And at that meal, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, comes up behind Jesus as he reclines at the table and she takes a jar and opens it on Jesus' feet, anointing his feet with this pungent oil, this beautiful, sweet-smelling aroma fills the room. And immediately everyone knows this was an expensive act of homage. In fact, it is calculated by those who are critical of Mary right there at that meal that this oil probably costs close to a year's wage for a common laborer. And they're critical. And among the voices that is most critical is guess who? Judas. Let's go to John chapter 12 and notice how John brings this out and focuses on the heart of Judas here. John chapter 12 and verse 4. John 12 and verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. He objected to Mary's act of homage and honor. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Righteous indignation, Judas would think. Verse 6, the truth is this. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus rebukes Judas in verse 7. Leave her alone, he replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And perhaps stung by that rebuke by Jesus, it is right then that Judas determines that he's going to help things along and see that Jesus is not long for this earth. It is perhaps in part for the love of money and for the bitterness toward Jesus for rebuking him publicly for his greed that Judas decides to betray Jesus. I think one of the reasons <clears throat> that that is so likely is because of the understanding of the sinful heart. Where it reacts most violently is at that very place where it is most guilty. And Judas' reaction is violent because Jesus has touched a nerve. And he goes to the enemies of Jesus and he settles the score. I'll turn him over if you'll give me money. I'd like to bring up just a few points as we consider and draw attention now toward our own response to this horrible account in Scripture. 
I think one thing that we learn here and that we can apply in our own life and understanding of others is this, that counterfeit Christians have secrets. Counterfeit Christians have secrets. They may never admit it. They may even be self-deceived and think that their sin is excusable and covered by the blood of Christ. And not that that is out of the question. But I'm speaking here of the fraud, the fake, the counterfeit Christian. Those who lack saving faith in Jesus do not live like those who are genuine believers. There are always secrets. I don't want us to get the idea that Judas was absolutely convinced that he was in love with God, completely self-deceived, and when he ended up betraying Jesus, it was an absolute shock to him. Nobody on the outside knew what was going on in Judas's heart, but there was something going on there. The counterfeit always has secrets, and maybe only he or she can know, but they're there. And it calls us to question, not to worry, am I a Christian or not? There are those who just get caught up in the worry of it all. Am I in or am I not? But rather, has Jesus satisfied your soul and is he transforming you? Or if the truth were known and all the people were removed from the scene, would you really honestly walk away from Jesus if you could? And have your sin without guilt. If you're in that condition... In some respects, you are in the worst of all lost conditions. Because you have not only an issue between you and God, you've got all those people that are standing around with expectations. You've got a reputation to shatter, your own, and that's hard. Let me tell you, look at Judas. If that's you, look at Judas. The only people that matter will rejoice if you repent and turn to Christ. The only people that matter will be glad. Don't walk that road. It will not end well. Counterfeit Christians have secrets, and they need to change. Secondly, I think we learn here that money is a powerful and destructive idol. The Bible makes this crystal clear over and over again, but it's so clear in the life of Judas. For the love of money, Judas betrayed Jesus Christ to death. That is a powerful sentence. It's hard to imagine that it's possible. But for the love of money, he would betray the innocent man. It is a powerful idol, and we must guard our hearts against it. Let me give you, practically speaking, just a simple test, a few tests here to determine this. We can always say, I don't love money, but that's words. Do we not? These aren't perfect tests, but I just give them to you practically. If you, in fact, are free from the love of money, first of all, you don't steal money. It's that simple. Secondly, you love to give to God's work. It is a joyful act of worship to give to God if you don't love money. If you don't love money, thirdly, you're not irritated when spiritual leaders call you to give to God's work. 
And you always wish when the project is over and the giving is done that it would have been more. More from you and more from everybody else. How many people I've talked to, I don't know, I've lost count. Not many, but there certainly have been a string of individuals who have made clear that they will never come to this church because they don't want to hear about money. I've never said anything because I don't think that's the big issue. I think there's a much deeper problem than, than that, but that is a reflection of a heart in love with money. When someone talks to you about what you should do with money to the glory of God, you don't get upset. You thank God for somebody speaking the truth. And you look at your own heart and you say, what's more important is that I love God, not money. If somebody can convict me of sin, I thank God for that messenger. And when any, any gift is given or work is done for the work of God, we rejoice in what we've given and we wish it were more. I thank God for the gift that was given to help our singles get to Mexico and to be a blessing to that ministry there. But I just wish it were more. I always wish it were more. We need to pass that test. I think another test is that you dream of ways to invest your money in God's work. If you're in this spot as a Christian, the only time you really think about giving to God is when somebody brings it up and it's sort of a little irritant to you. And yeah, yeah, I gotta remember that, I have to do that. You really need to look deep inside and ask some questions. Do you on your own, when you're on vacation, when you've got some time in the car, do you from time to time dream about how to make a difference in God's work with the money that he's given to you. That should be something exciting. That should be a project we rejoice to consider, not one that's always an irritant and a bother. If it's a bother, then it's because you look at your money as your money, and you've not looked at it yet as a gift from God. It's a joy to give, and those who love to give think about how to give. Final test that I'll offer just here not a conclusive list, but is this. If you don't love money, then you are content with what you have. Not content with what you hope to have soon. You are content now with what you have. That's not to destroy ambition and ingenuity, hard work, planning and progress, not at all. But it means that right now where you are today, you can go to bed and be content with what you have. Judas was not satisfied with God, and so he looked to find satisfaction in money. And money can deaden the pain somewhat. That's why it's so dangerous. But it will never satisfy. Within a few hours of receiving that money, the cold metal was in his hands in the bag. He had the money. Within a few hours, he threw it all down on the ground of the temple and ran out and hung himself. That's the joy that money gives in itself. He had everything he wanted, and he wanted none of it. Are you content now? It's a true test of whether or not we love money. Let me go to a third line of application, and that is betrayal is evil. It is never final. 
Betrayal is evil. It is never final. Perhaps you have suffered betrayal in some shape or form. Someone has wronged you in unspeakable ways. Like Jesus, your good friend has lifted up the heel against you. Or an authority figure has betrayed you. In some way, you've been betrayed. There's an awful lot for us to learn from Jesus here and from the way that God's Word depicts this account. Do you notice the Bible never does anything to turn Judas into a villain? It just states the facts. In fact, although Jesus knew Judas would betray him, Jesus did nothing to alienate Judas. He did nothing to belittle him or to ostracize him. In fact, he didn't even do anything just to cut him out of his life. At the Passover meal, Jesus was reclining on his left arm with his legs out behind and his head was right in the chest of Judas. You know why Judas was sitting there? It was a place of honor. And there is no question that the master seated the guests. Jesus seated Judas right next to him on the night of betrayal. And in an act of kindness, a gesture that is, gesture that is unknown to us, Jesus took a piece of bread and he dipped it in a bowl of juice and he handed it to Judas. It was a symbol of friendship, of kindness, and of grace. And it was Judas' last chance. Jesus did not ignore Judas' sin. He told the other disciples about it. He revealed it to them. Jesus rebuked Judas's greed and extended there with that piece of bread an offer for repentance. But Jesus never sought to destroy Judas. He never even sought to stop him. Jesus left Judas in God's hands. And in the end, every betrayal can be left in God's hands because God is a God of sovereign grace. If you have to run the universe, if God is weak, then you need to work and get even with those who betray you. But if God is God, then He is sovereign God of grace and He can be trusted to take care of matters in your life and mine. Who betrayed Jesus? It was Judas. Who influenced Judas? Satan. So where is God in the picture? Where is God on this dark night of the soul? We know it well, and we need to, but let's remember again the words of Luke in Acts chapter 2, if you'll turn there. Where is God on this night of betrayal? Acts chapter 2 in verse 22 gives us the answer very pointedly. Acts 2.22, men of Israel, Peter 
preaches. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Everybody in Israel knew it. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by Satan who filled Judas. That is true. But what does Peter preach? This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, not God, but you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. By God's set purpose and foreknowledge, Jesus was handed over to his enemies. That means that God knew and God sovereignly ordained that Judas would betray Jesus and that Jesus' enemies would see that he was crucified. Yes, that presents all kinds of issues and problems and questions. But I'll tell you what, for that believer who will simply, in faith, accept what Scripture teaches, this is a solid rock. Because it says that suffering betrayal, though one of the most bitter of all forms of human suffering, is never the end of the story. We can have hope in the midst of betrayal because Jesus walked this path. No one has ever tasted the bitter taste of betrayal like Jesus tasted it. No one. He knows what it means to suffer this way. And what is so full of hope is the fact that Jesus knew and trusted that God reigns and that he has the final word. And so God handed Jesus over to his betrayers and to his enemies, and Jesus trusted God in it. They were responsible for their sin, but God always determines the final outcome. Always. And so Jesus rested, and he trusted, and he continued to live as a good man. God always determines the final outcome. And his stories always end in glory for his people. Always. In that confidence, in that faith, in a great and powerful God, we can respond to betrayal and every other wrong in faith and in goodness. May God strengthen our faith to trust in him as Jesus did. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, I don't know all of the stories and the secrets and the difficulties that your people may have or even be experiencing. 
when it comes to betrayal and suffering and wrong at the hands of others. But I pray, Lord, that through your Spirit you might make clear the truth of your Word and bring comfort and strength. Help us to battle hypocrisy and to know for sure that we are in the faith. Help us to fight the love of money. And help us, Father, I pray, in the midst of betrayal, to trust your gracious hand in our lives. I pray for anyone here who is not reconciled to Christ, maybe as a fraud. I pray that you will work in that heart and bring that person to the light and permit that person to let go of the things they're holding on to, the idols of this world, and may they embrace Jesus Christ as Savior today, I pray. For those of us that know you, may we be humbled by Judas's stumbling and fall. May we be ever wary of the spiritual battle. God, may you build our faith and strengthen us to see your might and your glory and your power and to know that you are writing the story of our lives and that we can rest in that. May we see a sovereign God who suffered the ultimate indignity and the ultimate betrayal. And may we, like Jesus, treat our enemies with love, trusting you to finish off the story as you see fit for your glory. We pray for our enemies. We pray for those today who are persecuting Christians, who are torturing them, and here in this land who are plotting behind closed doors sometimes and sometimes in print to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. We pray for our enemies that you will bring them to a place of submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ before it's too late. We pray for mercy. And I pray for the persecuted. Help them, God, to hold on and to trust. May your grace rest upon us as we suffer our small indignities. May we trust in your sovereign grace. For those that have suffered greater trials, I pray, God, that they cling to you as their rock and their fortress and their strength and to know that you write the end of the story. By your grace, bring it about, I pray, in our lives through Christ's power and strength we come to you. In his name we pray. Amen.